Hello there, I'm Max Kaiser. This is the Kaiser Report. Oh yeah, the uh, British Pound has a new icon attached to it. Stacy. And it's quite fitting, Max, because the new face on the 50-pound note will be Alan Turing. Without Alan Turing, there would be no Bitcoin, in fact, because he helped basically cryptography. He's the father of, of modern computer science and the Turing machine, which is the computer. Every computer you operate on or type on is because of Alan Turing. So I want to turn to this tweet that I sent about what's going on in the UK, the reaction to Alan Turing, a white man, being announced as the face of a 50-pound note. Because one thing that the Democrats in America have done and the liberals across the world is they no longer talk about economics. They only talk about identity. So they distract everybody with this crazy, uh, you know, just focus on this person's identity and who has the most uh, victim within their identity and that they're the better person, right? So never talk about economics, never talk about class issues or, or the, the structure of our global economy and how it causes wealth and income gaps and things like that. No wonder there is such a backlash to identity politics, I said, because Caroline Criado Perez, she wrote that, so that's still 75% male and 100% white. Really disappointing, Bank of England. You were meant to change your selection procedure to include diversity across the characters as part of the criteria. What went wrong? She said this in response to a breaking Second World War code breaker, Alan Turing, will be the next character to appear on the 50-pound banknote, the Bank of England confirms. So, of course, Alan Turing basically was driven to suicide by the British state when they found out he was a homosexual and they castrated him. And within two years, he had committed suicide by taking cyanide. He certainly uh, would qualify as someone in, in an oppressed group. Um, that the LGBTQ community, you would think, would embrace this. Actually, somebody did respond to her and said, LGBT uh, does not count as uh, diversity, does it not? And she said, pretty sure black lesbians exist. So, so that was the criteria, just a black lesbian. Whereas here, not only was the man killed by the state, but this is like, he's literally a genius. Like the guy altered the entire fabric of the world around us today would not exist. He went to Princeton, for example. Princeton considers him the second most important person to ever attend Princeton. And loads of geniuses, famous people, world-changing sort of people attended Princeton. But he's considered the second only to James Madison, who, of course, was the founding father who wrote the U.S. Constitution, that he was considered the most important to ever attend Princeton. So here, Alan Turing, he, you know, he was a mathematician, cryptography, modern computer science, Turing machine, artificial intelligence. Uh, you know, in order for an AI to be considered, you know, artificially intelligent, it has to have the Turing test. Like, here's a guy who actually qualifies for somebody as a genius, but this woman tries to lower him to his identity. Uh, here she's saying it's not a good identity because he's a white man. The other person's saying, well, he's a gay guy that was killed. Like, but the fact is, he was a genius who altered the fabric of the universe. Yeah, I don't uh, understand uh, why the obsession over this particular generation of political observers in this uh, millennial and uh, 
post-baby boom generation can't get out of their own shadow. Like, in other words, there's a something called civilization that's built up institutions, and there's a aggregate wisdom and knowledge that we possess. It's our birthright. But instead, we're like monkeys picking lice from each other's hair and commenting on the size of people's ears and chattering to the monkey next to them like, chimp, chimp Joey has small ears. I don't get it. Like, why, why are we forsaking our, our birthright as intelligent humans to, to be obsessed in these picayune differences? I think because the fabric of our economy around us and the financial system has benefited certain people and it's oppressed a huge quantity of people. And I think, you know, the, especially the left, because the right doesn't ever have any qualms about, you know, the ruthlessness of their practice of capitalism. Whereas the, the left doesn't like to say that they're advantaged in a certain way. So they say, like, we feel bad for those oppressed people in Africa or Asia or Latin America. And we feel bad about it and let's identify, uh, you know, these, gen these identity politics. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. Had, had said this exact same thing was happening. He was against that. He, was, he talked specifically about the oppression of the system that kept the majority of African Americans down, but also poor white people, poor Latin, Latinos. Like, so he identified a system that kept certain people down. Here's a guy who, it's genius that he's on the, the I think, the last 50-pound note. This is the end of the fiat era, right? Because you have, uh, again, he's the number two man ever to graduate to attend Princeton. Number one was James Madison, who was very integral to the separation of the church and state. This was his thing. Like He was considered the guy who wrote the most important fundamental text about that, about the separation of church and state, and argued very soundly why they should be separated. Then comes the separation of money and state, and this is what Bitcoin delivers. And if it weren't for Alan Turing, uh, we wouldn't have we wouldn't be where we are today. I tweeted, I think it's quite fitting for Turing to be featured on the last of the 50-pound notes. I don't think fiat will survive much longer, and that's thanks to Turing laying the seeds for our monetary escape hatch. Somebody named Bitcoin Hoddle responded, Turing on the last bills of fiat is like self-fulfilling prophecy. Who's the bitch now, says Alan from the other side of the UK government. <laughs> yeah, indeed, it is ironic. And it probably will be the last of the fiat. And, um, you know, I think this uh, women's uh, football team or soccer team that won the championship recently, they, they are American heroes, American icons. But there's so much chatter about whether they should be more demure, they should be more sub, sub, sub not subversive. Submissive. Submissive, that's it. Uh, and uh, th that's completely wrong. I don't understand that either. I mean, here's genuine, highly skilled women who, have, who are champions, who led by a very charismatic champion. Uh, th that th these women should be celebrated, and uh, but they get a lot of uh, backlash as well. So everyone's completely confused on these issues. They don't understand what greatness is anymore. Turing's role in World War II is credited as ending the war two years early and saving approximately 14 million lives. So, but the fact that he wasn't black is what the identity politicians will say now that he shouldn't be on the 50-pound note. Creating the Enigma machine, which broke the, um, the codes, the Nazi codes, like saved lives, ended the war early. So like, it's a, it's a weird person to pick on at, 
you know, despite his achievements, despite how profound his achievements are, that... Well, it's racist, and, because they're saying they're, they're making a judgment based entirely on his color. Yes. That's racist. And he was killed by the freaking state. Like, he's, he, that's the definition of oppression. That is an oppressed person. Uh, he was finally forgiven, by the way, in 2013 by the Queen. She uh, got rid of his, uh, posthumously, his... Right, uh, but to criticize him in this way is one of the most racist things I've heard all year. You know, he's saying he's white, therefore he's, he's invalid. So the last of the fiat notes, okay, last of the fiat currencies to exist. This will be the last 50-pound note. There will never be... Another There's no person. more for me to rip up. There will be, exactly. There will be no other faces on the 50-pound note. So it's quite fitting that Alan Turing will be there. And this, I think, is proof. This tweet with a little story, uh, bear with me here. Charles gave on the stupidity of negative interest rates. Not sure how this can be called a market economy. When meeting some clients a few weeks ago in Amsterdam, I made my usual remark about the stupidity of running negative interest rates. In response, my host told me a sobering story. He manages a pension fund and had recently started to build large cash positions. One day he was called by a pension regulator at the central bank and reminded of the rule that says funds should not hold too much cash because it's risky. They should instead buy more long-dated bonds. His retort was that most Eurozone long bonds had negative yields, and so he was sure to lose money. It doesn't matter, came the regulator's reply. A rule is a rule, and you must apply it. Thus, to reduce risk, the manager had to buy assets that were one hundred percent sure to lose the pensioners money right well this is a great example of front-running government idiocy so the government regulations mandate that pension funds must buy losing bonds negative interest rate bonds and hedge funds know that the size of these purchases will be and they can get in there and front-run these orders and make a few bucks uh, front-running the regulatory stupefaction and the zombification of the economy, much to the bankruptcy of all those pensioners that will receive less than zero when they are ready to retire. So uh, this is part of the 2008 financial crisis. In 2008, the economy of the world died, and uh, the money printing that's gone on has kept the illusion of animation financial animation or economic animation going like a loop on a video game there's that could be run without anyone actually behind it and uh, this is now extended to negative interest rates that have uh, no reason to exist whatsoever other than to perpetuate the animation of economic activity even though there's nobody home the lights are on but nobody's home and when we went away on summer vacation, before we went away, the negative yielding bonds were at about 11 trillion in negative yielding bonds. Now it's 13 trillion. So part of the reason this very same central bank that called this pension fund manager and forced them out of cash, part of the reason why all these yields are negative is because the central banks are buying up the bonds in order to oppress one group and, and, you know, to help one other group of people. So, again, like comparing this to what Alan Turing went through is here's a guy who f literally saved the world, saved millions of people, altered the course of human history with his inventions and his mathematical work and algorithms and cryptography and all that stuff, 
alter the word. He had to die because uh, he w w because the rules are the rules. He was homosexual. He had to die. So here, the same central bank that is now deciding to put Alan Turing on the 50-pound note, were they ever to try to revive fiat currencies after the collapse of the system, maybe central banks will put all these savers, all these pensioners, all of these, you know, ordinary workers that they basically castrated and forced into, uh, you know, suicide, collective economic suicide by these negative yields, by, by these negative debts, by quantitative easing, by NERP, by all of these policies that were, uh, you know, instituted for no good reason at all, no sensible reason on earth. Right. The central bankers are the Khmer Rouge of our day. Well, we're going to take a break. When we come back, much more coming your way, including an exclusive with Pol Pot. <laughs> Welcome back to the Kaiser Report. I'm Max Kaiser. Time now to turn to Chris Martinson of peakprosperity.com. Chris, welcome back. Hey, Max. Good to be back with you here today. Chris Martinson, you write that we have a choice facing us. Greatness or oblivion? Now, I'm pretty sure we'll choose oblivion, but uh, as humans always do. But what would greatness look like uh, were we ever to choose that? Well, it would mean that we would have to get past some of our biological programming. You know, and and this is like our species. This is a big position piece I wrote. I'm talking about, look, you, you look at things like people are concerned about climate change and and you look at all the different accords that were that were you string them out along the timeline of CO2 and nothing happened. Right. We, we seem unable to rally to the really big predicaments that are facing us. You know, Chennai, India, totally out of water. That's millions of people affected. Lots of countries falling into that position. We're strip mining our soils and uh, taking the macro and micronutrients and basically flushing them into the ocean where they do tremendous damage. But when they're gone, baby, they are gone. So this piece is about asking why are we doing that and what would it take for us to grow up in this story? And some of that is getting past our psychological wiring and some of it's understanding what our biological wiring is. So uh, to get to greatness means that we actually have to do a little, it's an evolution of consciousness we have to grow up. We have to understand we're no longer teenagers. We can't we can't just sully our room and, and mom and dad are going to clean it up. We're adults now. We got one planet. It's uh, screaming at us that uh, it's time to grow up. And the question is, can we or will we? That's what I was exploring, some of the factors driving that. This opens up an interesting uh, conversation here. So, you know, the humans are programmed to uh, for flight or fight. You know, they're programmed to have a high tech time preference for money, right? The idea of saving money is, goes against most humans' intuition. Most humans want to spend money quickly before it, it blows away, et cetera. So um, parallel to this, it seems as though we are now competing with a species that does not have these problems, and that would be robots. You know, machines are learning very quickly, and they're seemingly competing for us uh, for resources. And I think, is there going to be a time when humans become extinct, but the machines will carry on? I mean, there's a bit of a digression here, but I, I have been giving this some thought. Um, but it seems that with solar panels kind of feeding the machines, they don't need, you know, the energy comes from there. Uh, they seem to be evolving at, uh, somebody, you know, points out hundreds of thousands of times faster than humans. 
and they don't, and, and they, it's almost as if they're pushing us out of the system by exploiting the fact that we are programmed to kill ourselves, Chris. Well, there's a, you know, part of the thing I explore in this piece was the idea, if we are going to push towards greatness, one thing we could do is understand that we have those biological wirings, right? We've got the fight or flight. We've got the, the near-term bias. You know, we, we, we discount things that are, you know, right in front of our frame of view and stuff that's really far out we don't know how to deal with. But AI doesn't isn't saddled with any of those things. So if we could push through on the technology side and get ourselves uh, a, an AI program that could really help us do things like, I don't know, like we see it already, right? Helping to time traffic lights because, you know, you can figure out things and take real-time data and, and do some uh, scenario analysis. Uh, probabilities, those are things that you can program in and, and understand what real risk and risk management looks like, et cetera. So I do think that there's a possibility here that if we said, coded up a big program that, and we told it, here are the parameters, run this farm in Iowa as best you can, knowing that we want it to last forever, right? Or thousands of years, then that program, it, you know, the AI can make decisions then that we would have to live with because it might decide it has to not grow corn this year and let the field go fallow for the soil. Who knows, right? But I do think that humans were linear. We don't deal with systems problems. And what I've been talking about in my site for 10 years is, we're facing a big, giant, systemic predicament. Apparently, China is already losing AI uh, in their five-year plans, and they're, they're using this uh, accordingly. And uh, anyway, let's, let's kind of uh, change gears here. So um, talking about the economy, there is now, and, and uh, human propensity to do stupid stuff, there's now $13 trillion of negative yielding debt. Pension fund managers in Europe are being forced to invest in these guaranteed losing investments as such uh, is considered risky by regulators, whereas does this lead us certainly not to greatness? In other words, you've got rules by the pension, by the state, telling pension managers they have to invest in negative yielding debt, even though it's patently stupid. They, they're guaranteed to lose money. So here's a good example. Um, our, our human tendency to do stupidness is overtaking the absolutely obvious conundrum of putting money into a guaranteed losing situation. 13 trillion in negative yielding debt, Chris. Yeah, this is an example of where the central bankers uh, have applied some linear thinking and it's breaking because they don't understand that this isn't a linear situation. So they said, well, if we go from 5% to 4%, look at all this awesome new spending and borrowing that happens. So then from four to three, that must be even better. Three to two, what they don't understand is from two to one, it doesn't start, it doesn't, you don't get the same straight line. It starts to bend out. Japan already proved this. They pushed into negative rates. They thought it was going to cause people to spend money. That's rational, right? I'd rather spend it than have it lose value in a bank account. People hoarded money instead. They decided to save because they no longer had a guaranteed income. So it, it caused it very different behavior than they thought. And the fun thing about central bankers, which I know you and I uh, love to, to beat on a little bit, is that they really are just intellectuals yet idiots, as Nassim Tlaib would call it, right? They, they have these ideas, they push them out there, and then somehow real-world data doesn't like impact what they're actually seeing. So $13 trillion of negative yielding debt is guaranteed losses. It's not even like you have to wait to infinity for your returns. You'll never get your money back from those. And uh, that has all kinds of social behaviors that will emerge that the central bankers don't know, can't predict, are unprepared for, and probably will ignore as long as they can because they're humans and their egos say, I need to be right. I'd rather not admit failure. It's uh, the economics of suicide. 
and economics of extinction. You know, like those Japanese fishermen who go after the big bluefin tuna and put them in freezers, knowing that they'll be extinct soon, and therefore the price goes up. Uh, so humans are applying that to themselves now. They're saying that, well, if we put a few humans in the freezer, maybe we can defrost them in a few years and they'll be worth something to the aliens that rule us. Now, uh, what about the U.S.? Is it possible for us to go negative interest rate and still retain the reserve status of the dollar, Chris? No, the reserve status has been chipped at for a while, and it's you know it's it's not in, in any danger at this particular moment, but it is whittling down from a high of almost 70% at one point. I think we're at like 61.5% reserve currency. But you're watching countries like China and Russia and other places that the U.S. has used the SWIFT club to drive uh, you know sort of policy behaviors. A lot of people are thinking, hey, I'd rather not be tied to either the U.S. dollar or the U.S monetary system, which is the SWIFT system, which we seem to have a lot of control over. So we're seeing those alternative uh, pieces set up. Now, the United States as well, you know, I guess everybody's looking at the United States saying, you know, least dirty shirt in the pile. So there is a lot of capital flow that's coming here. Of course, why not? If you could get 2% on a 10-year treasury instead of minus 0.4% on a 10-year German bond, go for it, right? So we're seeing those capital flows, but to me, it's the Roach Motel model. Everybody's going to flood towards the last safe place, but the everything bubble's going to burst someday. We know that. We know central bank printing can't you know, levitate all things for all times. The longer they keep it on, the more of these malinvestments and other unpredictable of course, I predicted them, and a lot of other people did, but these unpredictable behaviors is you do crazy monetary stuff. So I think all the money rushes into the U.S., discovers that was a bad idea, tries to rush out again, has nowhere to go. Back in medieval times, people considered monarchs to be basically God's representatives on Earth, and even if the monarch was mentally feeble or uh, incapacitated in some way, and force people to do really stupid things, people had to do it because he was the monarch and the monarch was an extension of God. Then we had the Enlightenment. Then we had free markets. Then we had liberalism. Then we had Western democracies. But now it seems like we're back to medievalism except this time with central bankers. If central bankers are mentally deficient, if they are mentally feeble, if they are uh, incapacitated in some way, we still do what they say, even th because they tell us they are doing God's work. In the case of Lloyd Blankfein, over the former uh, head of Goldman Sachs, aren't we just back to medieval times, Chris? Well, we are, and and one way you can detect that is you watch central bankers come out with completely ridiculous statements, and they're not challenged or questioned at all, and they're able to say really dumb stuff. Like the Bank of England came out a couple months ago and said the Bank of England is not at all responsible for the wealth gap that occurred, right? It's completely obvious to everybody that if you print money and hand it out into the markets, and the markets are uh, mostly uh, held and dominated by very wealthy people and, and the players who are most closely aligned to that, you're just basically printing money and handing it to certain groups of people. That enriched them. That created the wealth gap. This isn't even remotely open for question, but the Bank of England came out and said, yeah, that's not. we're not responsible for that. And Jerome Powell, in his recent uh, testimony in front of the House Committee, he waffled on the same thing. You know, somebody said, what about the 1%? He goes, oh, yeah, you know, we, we think maybe it's globalization and, I don't know, inheritance. You know, uh, it's just ridiculous that the Federal Reserve can't own up to the fact that it is the proud owner of the largest wealth and income gaps in all of history. And this is global now. It's just, but they say that, and you're right, it's kind of like listening to a king say, you know, I'm wearing clothes when he's just totally naked. So here we have the Black Death of poverty, 
which is now rampaging through America and the, around the world because of central bank policy, and the central banks to uh, repudiate this are telling us things like, well, we're just trying to count the number of angels on the head of a pin. Our academic theory tells us to do this. We're buying negative interest rate bonds because the theory tells us to do so and because ultimately the God uh, is behind it all. Now, despite the melt-up in these stock prices brought on by rampant Fed printing and irresponsible behavior, they're expected to cut rates again July 31st. So is this just more of the same insanity, Chris? It is, and we're getting close to the denouement. This is the final blow-off top that we've all been waiting for. It took way too long. I thought we had it in 2016, but you know, they printed like crazy back then. Some of the largest, most, in fact, the most aggressive printing ever was 2016 and 17. Uh, and they did rescue us from a, a little downturn because they can't have a downturn now. But of course, with no downturns, imbalances build. So the central bankers are again back to printing. So people uh, often say to me, Chris, look, bonds are signaling recession. I'm like, no, they're not. They just went up massively in price. So the yields went down, but so did stocks. This is uh, prima facie evidence, as far as I'm concerned, that they, the central bankers, got a little worried in December and they opened the financial easing and liquidity floodgates. We don't know all the mechanisms that they use yet. Listen, I'm the guy over here saying, on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, they have a central bank preferred buyer program. It's on their website. Central bankers happen to be the largest participants, so they get the best discount pricing on CME products. Well, what are those? Futures and options. On what? I don't know. Stocks, bonds, gold, oil, stuff like that. Not one central bank admits on their balance sheet to owning any CME products where you could say short the VIX and buy E-minis hand over hand if you wanted to. All right, that's a great up, point uh, to end rates. on. We're going to carry over to a second segment. Thanks for this segment, Chris. Thank you. All right, and that's going to do it for this edition of the Kaiser Report with me, Max Kaiser, and Stacey Herbert. I'd like to thank our guest, Chris Martinson of thepeakprosperity.com. If you'd like to get in touch, tweet us at Kaiser Report. Until next time, bye, y'all.